Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier. As you do those things today on the show, I'm talking to the uh, author and academic Pete Etchells about his... Well, about writing and about narratives in video games and video games as an artistic medium, but also about his book that he wrote on the subject called Lost in a Good Game, where he looks at games and their function and their history and whether they're a terrible blight on society or whether they have some good things or whether there are some negative aspects and some positive aspects. It's really, really interesting and it's a very grown-up uh, look at games and I really enjoyed reading it and I really enjoyed chatting to Pete as I hoped um, he had a lot of I always whenever I'm thinking of how to describe something I, I always have this I'm always conscious in the back of my mind it might sound like I'm using euphemisms or damning with faint praise because I was about to say he had a lot of um, nuanced and considered takes but that makes it sound like I'm implying uh long-winded and boring i don't mean that at all i mean genuinely he talks like uh, about his experience uh doing research and why he got into it which was basically partly to do with being drunk and angry down the pub uh, but also about science communication in general and the state of play in publishing today you know not all book this is I mean, brace yourself if you're not sitting down. Please do sit down. Not all books with science in them or that claim the mantle of being scientific contain information that is 100% true. Some authors make mistakes. Some maybe aren't qualified to evaluate the information that they include in their books. And some, no doubt, although I imagine it's the the minority, a deliberately cherry-pick information or even, you know, defraud their readers or, or misrepresent things. Now, I, I think it's, it's more likely, and I think we should always blame mistakes uh, unless we have other information, because uh, mistakes are incredibly easy to make. And there's also a lot of grey areas where people just might state with more confidence than the evidence suggests that something is true so we we talk about that like how do you write books where you know and and maintain the responsibility to be truthful to the reader and give them the best information you can while making them interesting you know the publishing industry seems to be clamoring for broad bold claims that in some way cast everything we thought before out the window you know, as a writer, if you care about truth and being honest with your readers, how do you how do you handle that? So we talk about that as well and just the process of writing a non-fiction book and how he tried to structure his book. So there's a really nice mix of, you know, if you're not interested in video games, and I know some of you are and some of you have no particular attachment to that topic. Um, we talk about science. We talk about writing non-fiction and the craft of it and how to go about it and how, you know, you 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 know, go through the project of taking this very broad topic and and turning it into a book that people might want to read. So I hope you enjoy it. It's really listenable 
um and uh you know uh had, we had a we we laughed a bit as well it was good fun um so i hope you enjoy that before i uh hand you over to pete i just want to say if you do enjoy the show um and you want to support it uh, i've got a coffee page if you haven't been on that yet uh you know you might just like to click through and just check it out that would you know even if you're not planning to uh give me anything uh or, or donate that's fine but I, I would appreciate if you'd like maybe just click through and had a look and and see what i've got set up there um but it's got like a little button that you can click to drop me a few beans um that helps with the running of the show it helps pay for things like uh my keeping all the podcasts online my hosting costs and my website hosting costs things like that i have um yeah i the show is always going to be free as long as i can keep it online and um i'm not put i don't put anything behind a paywall because i want uh it to have the biggest reach possible and i i want authors to not have to pay extra but if you like it and enjoy it and like what i do and you want to support the show it's deeply appreciated uh today's been a particularly stressful day for a number of real life reasons and i'm sure you know you might be listening and you might be having a similar day or you, things might be going well for you uh you know a lot's going on in my life at the moment and uh some of those things are fraught with uncertainty and uh yeah and it's fine i i it's it's well it's not totally fine but i'm not you know it's just what life is like you know i i think things generally work themselves out or the situation generally changes doesn't it and that's all we can do really so sorry i didn't want to what i didn't want to do is talk about that because i like being honest on the show but i didn't want to make it seem part of the plea for money um because it's not it's just um it's just because i think it's always worth saying these things on the show i always feel like there's a lot of writing advice that is given in this kind of like clinical way that doesn't include the fact that we are human beings existing in the world and sometimes life stuff is going to come up in the way sometimes somebody you care about might be in the hospital sometimes you might be having relationship problems or the relationship relationship might end sometimes you might be having work problems or real financial strife sometimes things might be very good you know you might have uh, a new baby in the house or you might a load of work might have come in and you're very busy in the business that you run and that's all very profitable and good but it takes up a lot of your time sometimes it, but it can be good or bad things but life gets in the way and it disrupts and I think when we talk about writing and saying do it x many words a day or you know you've got to make yourself sit down um it's not easy to stay in that seat at the best of times and when things are difficult it can be particularly hard and I, I don't want to tell you to not write in those situations because I think you don't need another voice saying when life's difficult stop writing you don't have to but I think it's okay whether things are going well or going badly to not try to motivate yourself to write by shouting at yourself or telling yourself you're letting yourself down I think it's more important in the difficult times than ever to 
encourage yourself when you're when you do want to write and if you do write to only motivate yourself with kindness and compassion lots of reassurance lots of encouragement lots of praise for having done anything at all i think there's a, sometimes a strain in some of the writing advice out there a strain of advice that suggests that if you're too kind to yourself <laughs> it's kind of infantilizing you and you'll become indulgent and you won't write and i don't think that's true i i, I think I mean, you know what, even if it is true, I don't think it's worth punishing yourself to be a writer. If if the only way that you could write was to be continually horrible to yourself, to motivate yourself through it, I, I think we've got to say that writing isn't worth it, that stories aren't worth it. Like, I know sometimes the old me, you know, 20 years ago would have found that sacrilege, you know, that the, 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 the whole business of the writer is to be somehow just to put writing on this pedestal and it always comes first above well-being above relationships above everything but I don't think that's true now I think I thought that because I thought writing could save me somehow from feelings of inadequacy from the uncertainty of life and it can't and so we've got to work with what we've got so that's my Jerry's thought for the day for today's episode really uh, is is just that the, the time of perfect equilibrium will never come so we might as well write now but when you do make sure that it comes from a place of self-love and make sure it's couched in that and just well done if you manage to write anything this week if you sit down and you do something superb, great job. Right. Thank you for listening. And now on to today's chat. This is me talking to author and researcher Professor Pete Etchells. Enjoy. I, I guess the first thing I, I want to ask, and indeed will ask, is when did you get the, first get the sense, if you can remember, that games were something special? Well, that's a really good question. That's, that's a hard one to answer, in a way. Um, in, in a way, because I've always played games, right? So... I played video games since I was about three or four, so literally as long as I can remember. So in a way, they're not special because they've always been a part of my life, right? Um, they they hold a special place in in my heart because they've been there as a source of kind of comfort and support in a way when times have been hard. Uh, throughout my life and that's that's something that I talk about in my book um but yeah I it's it's an interesting question because I, I I've argued for a while that in a way games aren't special in the sense that we we seem to treat them 
as this unique category, right? That we we don't panic about videos or TV or books or whatever in the same way that we get so easily panicked about video games. And and underlying that is this assumption that they're different somehow, that they're a um, a unique form of uh, entertainment medium. Maybe in some ways they are, um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. But yeah, this is a really rambly answer to your question, which is, is really to like to answer it properly. I don't know when, I don't know if I think they are special and, and if I do think they are special, I don't know when I decided that. Well, a different way of coming at it, I guess, would be to ask, uh, w- when can you remem- first remember or what's your one of your sort of like first experiences or one of your biggest experiences of playing a game and either at the time or looking back going oh oh yeah like this is like this is it this is the juice this is the thing like this this is what a game should be or oh that's something i couldn't get Mm. anywhere else from a different art form i've had a few experiences like that actually um there's one that I, when people ask me questions like that, there's one that I often think of, and it was probably about 10 years ago or so, um, and it was one of the Gears of War games. And there's, I think it was, it was either two or three, I can't remember now. I, I have a, a three-month-old child, which means that I have no memory for anything anymore. Um, <laughs> there's a scene in that that game where in sort of the level leading up to it. I mean, it's really super, super gory, super violent game where you go around shooting aliens and occasionally chainsawing them to death. Uh, so it's not really the, the thing that you think of immediately as a game that really sticks in your mind as a, a wow moment. But, you know, having played through a couple of the games and really kind of getting to know the characters and, and, and becoming attached to them, there's a scene where you're kind of completely over overrun by these aliens and your best mate in the game decides to do a runner and get a, a big oil tanker truck and drives it around and basically rams it into the, these aliens and kills them all, kills himself at the same time, uh, thus saving the rest of the the squad. And the way that they filmed that cutscene was really quite heart-wrenching in a way. So throughout the throughout the, the, the game series, the character's called Dom. He, he talk, often talks about his wife that he lost when the aliens first arrived and you kind of cut to him in the in the cab of this massive truck as he's careening to his death uh, where he's getting really kind of panicky upset and he looks at a picture of his wife and goes you know i never i never thought it'd end like this hey maria um and then it goes into sort of slow-mo when he uh, he hits the the aliens and explodes and, and they they put it to mad world by gary jules and I, I played that and saw that scene and I had to turn my, my Xbox off and, and leave for a bit and just go for a bit of a walk, really. Just because it, it, it was such a, a poignant thing. It was so beautifully executed, almost like a movie scene. But the thing that made it particularly special is that you built this rapport with this character by playing alongside them for two, three games at that point. And it, it was sort of somewhat unexpected that this was going to happen. That was a, That was a big... That was a big wow moment for me. I think there's a few like that. I talk I talk about a couple of them in the book, and I think the thing that underlies them, and maybe this is the thing that makes games special, is that 
you you have a sense of agency in games, right? It's not something is not being done to you or you are passively consuming some sort of entertainment. You you are the main character, right? You're you're guiding their actions, you're telling them what to do, making decisions. And and having that sense of agency therefore allows the stories that we, we go through in video games to have a real personal impact on you, right? So it's not just that the main character has betrayed his team, so you feel angry at that particular character. It's you are that person, so you might feel personally betrayed in that situation. Um, Naomi Alderman, who's a, a, a games developer and, and writer, talks about this quite a lot, the sense of agency that um, really it's only video games that allow you to do that. You know, you can you can enjoy a book, you can um, you can you know, uh, really relate to the characters, but it's only in a video game where you you are actually them. So you feel kind of personally affronted when bad things happen, and you feel real real joy and a sense of achievement when you win things or you get to the end of a level. And I think that's probably the thing that sets them apart for me. And it's the thing that underlies those moments where you go, "Wow, that was that's something that I'm going to remember for a long time." Yeah, because it's interesting the your choice of language there when you're talking about that you chose a cutscene which is where that memory, where that agency is taken away from you. I mean, people talk about cutscenes as if they're new, but there are literally cutscenes in Pac-Man that you're <laughs> rewarded with every few years. Like, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a new... Our ability to kind of make them cinematic has improved, but games have always had that. But um, I just wonder... You, you said it was almost like a movie, which I guess, to some people, they... And when we describe games, I think we often end up in this place of going, it was, it was, it was, it's, it's like going, it was like an, it was an ersatz version of a medium that already exists and can do all that. Um, but it looked, but it was, yes, by Hollywood production values, it, it would look, if you saw that in a movie, you, it, it would be a bit pixelated and you'd go, oh, I'm not so sure. And yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's, things that I've had an emotional reaction to in games that um, it's really difficult to explain to someone uh, why I feel almost embarrassed because I'm like, well, yes, now when I say it out loud, it does seem, you know, like a lot of emotional freight to be riding on that. Yeah. You, you said that it's because we feel personally involved. I wonder if you could go into that in a little bit more detail, this idea of agency and how it affects emotional involvement. Yeah, so it's... Um, I think it's the, it's sort of the key point that is both like the, the kind of fundamental thing that people need to get about video games and it's also like you say it's the hardest thing to get across and I think part of the reason that we struggle to have these sorts of conversations is that we've not really developed that sort of vocabulary for for games in the same way that we've got for talking about movies and talking about books and things like that and and part of the reason for that, I think, is because it's so much harder to get into games than it is other entertainment media, right? So if you've never seen a movie before, all you need to do is go to a cinema or sit in front of your TV and select a movie and watch it, just sit there and watch it. And if you don't like it, if it didn't really gel with you, you can, it's, you know, it's not that difficult to switch it off and find something else and eventually you'll find a movie that you like and you'll find the stuff that you're into. 
Video games are different. You can't just do that with a game in the same way. It's a bit easier nowadays with things like mobile games and stuff. But if we talk about console games, so you've never played a game before, you decide on a whim, I, I want to start playing PlayStation 5 games, right? So you buy a PlayStation 5, if you can. <laughs> there aren't many around at the minute. Um, you unbox it. It's a massive wires and leads and stuff. So you figure out how to plug it into your TV. Then you've got to find your Wi-Fi password. You've got to find some batteries for the remote. You've got to find your Wi-Fi password to allow it to connect to the internet. First thing that happens when it connects to the internet is that it downloads an update. right? Then you put the disk in. First thing that happens when you put the disk in is that the game installs, and that takes a couple of hours. When the game's finished installing, then inevitably what will happen is it will connect to the Wi-Fi again and will download an update, which will take an hour or whatever. And then at that point, finally, you can start playing the game. But even at that point, it's hard because you've got to figure out how to use the controller. You've got to figure out how to use those particular controls for that game. And it takes time to get to a point of expertise uh, and competency in a game where you can just sort of fluidly enjoy it. And that's the point at which you'll, you'll kind of figure out whether you like it or not, right? So the, the barrier to entry for video games is so much higher than other forms of entertainment and i think that's what part of the reason why we find it hard to to talk about it to have conversations with people who don't play them because there's there's sort of that lack of common ground you know we talk about analogies that you know it's a bit like this movie like you said but it, it's not that's not really what games are like um and we're still not there, there yet really it's it's something that i think has caused all sorts of problems in terms of our understanding of what video games can do in terms of an impact on us and what they can do for us. And that's been going on for like 20 years or so, right? But we're still not there with it yet. We, we're getting better, but not quite there. And yet that that same element of video games, that that sort of level of immersion, right? That, that, that need to really become competent at the game and get into it is the thing that ties us into it and really taps into that deep, potential emotional connection that we can have with them. Um, I I played a game over the summer called Spiritfarer on my uh, Nintendo Switch. And I was I was talking to a journalist at the BBC about it, and they were, they were doing a, a show about um, video games and grief. And I the, the, Spiritfarer is an amazing game, and, it, and, and very much centrally, the, the the core part of the story is dealing with grief. Basically, it's a two-dimensional platformer game, and you play this character called Stella, who um, takes over from uh, Charon as as the ferrier ferrier of the undead. And the game revolves around you trying to find these lost spirits, um, help them with quests that you know their unfinished business from their from their life, so that they can eventually move on. And it's emotionally quite a gut-wrenching game because a, a particular spirit character it might take say three or four hours maybe to to from first meeting them to finishing and and them them leaving for the for the great beyond and three or four hours of intensively thinking about a particular character and following what happened in their lives and you know what their dreams and hopes and things that they missed were you start to get really attached to them, right? And it really 
it really hurts a little bit that when when you get to the final bit and the last quest for them is always they go through this thing called the Everdor and you will never see them in the game again. That's it. They've gone. Um, it it really kind of makes you confront the idea of loss. But for me, the, there was one character in particular um, that really it, it sort of really struck home for me. And so so each character, the same thing happens. You know, you do these tasks and then eventually you take them to this thing called the Everdor and you have this nice uh, but melancholy chat with them and they disappear. And you know it's going to happen, right? But you know, there it is. There's one character in particular who is the life and soul of the party and the last one of the last quests you get them to do is to help them put on a big feast for everybody on the boat. And the morning after, they've gone. Uh, they're not on the boat anymore and... You know, you're going around asking them, asking everybody where they've gone and nobody's seen them. And you don't get that last goodbye with them. They don't, you don't go through the Everdor with that particular character. That's it. They have gone. There is no going back. There's no magically finding them somewhere. It turns out all these characters are reflective of people in Stella's real life. And, and that particular character is an uncle who, again, was the life of the party. And he just disappeared one day and nobody ever knew what happened to him. And it really... It really hit home that that experience that it felt for me like that was one of the most accurate representations of death and loss that I've ever seen in any sort of medium, right? Because I personally felt that I was I was I was you know gearing myself up to saying goodbye to this character in the same way that I'd done with everybody else, and I didn't get that chance. And I didn't know it was coming. So I've ruined the game for everybody now because I've told them about it. Uh, I didn't know it was coming. And, and that, it makes you realise that how much control you have over a, a character in a game. You know, obviously it's limited within the, the parameters of the game. But when you take that control away, it can be such a powerful storytelling tool. And maybe that's that's what I found about the the cutscene that I talked about earlier. Is that that's the one point in the game where you can't control anything, you can't do anything about it. Stuff's going to happen whether you like it or not, and that's quite a disconcerting experience in the context of a video game when usually you have quite a lot of control over everything. Um, and I think that that sort of dy dynamic, that ability to give you agency to to allow you control or the illusion of control over characters within a within a given rule system um empowers people to to to, to really kind of uh, bond with and get attached to even incidental characters and when you take it away for narrative effect it's such a powerful thing um yeah I, for, for me it was it you know it's a really that particular game in that particular moment, like I say, is probably one of the most accurate representations of what it's like to lose somebody um, that I've ever seen in a game. And I don't know whether that was unintentional or not. But to go, to go back to something else that you were saying, I tried to explain this to the, the BBC journalist and, and uh, we set up a video camera and I showed him the game. Um, and he'd, he'd never really played games before. You look at the game, it's a really cartoony... Uh, it looks like a sort of Japanese manga style 2D game. And the character that I was talking about is a giant toad. Yeah. And you start kind of showing these things and you're like, this looks like something that a kid should play. This is 
this is really childish or this is really cheesy almost and you're you're trying to tell me that you know, it, it evokes these very deep and complex emotions in you. It's a weird, it's a weird thing to try and explain to people, right? Um, and he was completely open to it. He was completely, completely open to the idea. But it, it did stri- strike me at the time that, yeah, we were. He, he was really kind of looking at the, the dialogue that you were having with the characters, and, and actually, when you really properly interrogate that dialogue, it's a bit naff and it's a bit cheesy. And I think that's the same in a lot of video games: is that the dialogue is not the best writing in the world. But somehow we kind of gloss over that when we're actually playing it. Um, and I don't know, again, whether that's partly because we sort of start to embody these characters that we play and um, we understand the intent from like body language and things like that from, from characters rather than the literal words that they're saying. Um, and maybe we kind of forgive the, the story writers a little bit for the cheesy prose. Do you think I? I mean, I, I, I'll, I, I want to wheel round in a second to talking um, specifically about some of the stuff that um, went into the book. Um, but I, I want just following up on that. I wonder if, in a, in the way that sort of tragic something when you have like tragic comedy, um, something being humorous can often kind of get us to let our guard down. Because we're like, oh, this is funny. I don't mind being emotionally open to this. And then when there's a gut punch or there's sadness, our guards down. I wonder whether the games... I don't know whether games having an association with being, you know, just fun or a form of play or childish in some way. Um, I've always wondered whether they sort of... it It allows them to kind of sneak past our emotional guards because i'm like i'll inv- I, I you know playing cave story i'm like i'll invest in this this is a story about i'm a little robot guy and here's some cute fluffy bunnies and mm. let's just jump about and then I, it's ridiculous how emotionally affected i felt by that game and it is like the story is just really silly it's really silly and there's a you know there's a i think a one of the baddies is just like a sentient suitcase and the bunnies keep turning into going in turning into sort of <laughs> monstrous zombie bunnies but i felt really but the emotional bits felt really fraught and i was like oh yeah. and i i i i i wonder whether it's just cuz i was kind of like oh yeah no i'm open to this game because i don't feel like i've got anything to defend whereas if i'm seeing sort of like a gritty noir police thriller on tv i'm like well this is going to be Grim, I'm not going to like yeah. emotionally invest in these characters in the same way. I don't yeah, know whether yeah, you I think, think that play, you know, how has that sneaky power. Definitely, uh, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think you know, Spiritfarer. I think it was a very deliberately designed choice that it looked like a very friendly 2D cartoon, because if you try and make it anything more serious and realistic than that, it gets really dark really quickly. Right? You know, you. You imagine that pitch, right? We're going to make a game about death and everything is about death and you're going to lose everybody and it's going to really tug at your heartstrings and it's going to look scary and stuff. Nobody would want to play that, right? But couching it within this cartoony environment sort of makes it a more welcoming and safer, it feels like a safer safer environment to, to explore those sorts of emotions in. And I think that's why play more broadly is so so powerful um and i've always found it odd that video games 
particularly, but play more broadly is seen as a childish thing today. I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, people scoff at me a lot at in being a, a psychologist who re researches video games, that it, it's, you know, something that's not worthy of research. It's not worth our time because they're a sort of trash form of entertainment and they're just sort of junk food for kids, really. Um, and you get that perception about play more generally, but play is pretty much the most important thing that humans can do. Certainly for kids, it is fundamentally important. Like it is, it is the thing that they should be doing. Kids should be playing, right? And the reason for that is that that's how they learn about social interactions, about rules of engagement, about the world around them. They do that in a way that's fun and motivating and engaging, and and that's what you want, right? Um, it's exactly the same for adults as well, right? Plays plays fun. Like if you if you say, well, "Why do you play things?" as though you shouldn't do that. It's like you saying, "You look like a person who shouldn't have any fun," um, which is a really weird, weird standpoint to take, right? So, I don't I don't know why we've got to the point where where we feel that way, but um, we do, and what what play allows us to do is to explore quite difficult concepts in a way that isn't isn't difficult in a way it allows us to well we've already talked about grief and loss right so it allows you to explore things like that and and you you could use a game like spirit fairer as a starting point for a discussion about death with kids uh, you can use it there are games out there so there's a game called remission which was uh, developed a few years ago uh, and that was like a third-person shooter-type game, and you you play this character who's going around the body, like gets shrunken, is going around human the human body, and sort of zapping cancer cells and doing all sorts of other things. And that game was specifically designed for teenage kids who are undergoing chemotherapy, and it was designed, and it looks like a really high-quality, high-production-value game, and it was designed to give them information about what's happening to them. Uh, about what chemotherapy entails, about why it's important to keep to your treatment regimes and, and maintain good hygiene and things like that. Um, and it's one of the few video games out there that has been the focus of a randomised controlled trial uh, where they looked at things like adherence to treatment regimes and they, you know, they found that the kids who played this game were more likely to stick to taking their treatments, understood it more, um, but we're kind of less scared about that because it was all being presented to them in this this fun environment. And anecdotally, the the, the developers of the game said that um, you know these kids love this game and they were showing their mates and stuff, and and their friends would go to the developers and say, you know, can we can we get a copy of the game? Uh, the developers were like, no, 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 it's not for you. You don't have cancer, so you're not allowed this game. So you know, it was it, it was a really powerful way of doing that, and that's that's what games allow us to do through that through the act of play, allow us to explore anything that we want to really in, in this sort of safe, safe environment, this safe sort of space where it won't have a, an actual impact on the real world, as it were. Can I, before, just as a, a final question before I move on to the next thing is, I, I just want to very gently and, uh, and uh, benignly push back on something you're saying there only because you talk about um sort of us people not wanting us to have fun or like the implication of games sort of being a not adult games being not worthwhile being that you know adults shouldn't have fun and there's a 
a, you know, a kind of moralization that's grown up around it where it's seen as something faintly or very shameful for a, a grown up to do who isn't in some way uh, socially backward or impaired. And yet, and I do this too, whenever you're talking to other adults about games, like you often are instinctively reaching for games often kind of like indie or art games with a very worthy theme um, or that has some practical real world use. Like this is a game that's helping, has an educational Mm -hmm. point for cancer sufferers. And I just wonder whether, is that why we, you know, these are off games are often, uh, you know, uh, uh, very themey games. They do exist, but they're often not representative of, the the bulk of games that people play and i wonder whether that sort of tendency to reach for very kind of like worthy artsy sounding games is a form of alibi it's kind of i wonder <laughs> whether there's part it part of us is going oh no like games like we're trying to make the case that games are fine fine art rather than taking the argument onto the field that you were the argument you were making earlier which is it's okay to have fun and i wonder whether you could just address that a little bit because it it does seem yeah. that you sort of a, a bit like when i hear people talking about hip hop and they'll try and say well these lyrics are you know as good as anything written by keats but they'll put them down on the page and it's kind of like what no this this but this slaps this is like a really funny good rhyme but that won't <sighs> because it, and I wonder if you could talk to that and whether you accept that or whether you think I'm wrong in that uh, surmise or... No, I think you're on something in a way. I mean, my my favourite, one of my favourite game series is Halo, right? And I've played played Halo, the Halo series for, what, 20 years now. Uh, the, the, newest, the newest iteration of that game came out um, at the start of December and I was very excited to play it. Hmm. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything deep and meaningful about how it uh, reminds me, how the, the 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 environments remind me of a, I don't know, a constable painting or something like that. I just like going around shooting people sometimes because it's a hmm. nice stress reliever. Um, and yeah, you look at the most popular games over the past 10 years, they're of that ilk, right? They're things like Call of Duty and Apex Legends and Fortnite, which are largely competitive shooter games. Um, now, there is beauty to be found in those games, uh, for sure. Um, but I think to sort of address your point of, you know, we talk about these, you know, perhaps indie games or these these avant-garde games, these games that look like some sort of art piece. If we were having this conversation 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about them because those games didn't really exist in the same way. And I think what's happened is that we've... We, we start to see uh, video games as a medium start to mature. The people that play them are older now. The you know the the, the biggest demographics of, of game players tend to be um, thirty to thirty four year old men uh, who've got quite you know who've got the income to be able to fund that. Uh, they're not the 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 realm of teenagers alone now. And and as video games have become more widely adopted and accepted and become more ma- mainstream, a more diverse audience of people have become interested in them. Now, 
there's a sort of tension in the video games industry, I think, at the minute, because I think people are getting a little bit bored of Call of Duty 78, 79, 90, Halo 37. That, you know, it's the same shoot em up game over and over again that's always popular, or, or it's, you know, FIFA 20, 2022 or whatever. That, that people are starting to realize that games do have this ability to be able to tell powerful stories and to, to, to draw us in and allow us to feel things in, in a way where, you know, we can, we can test our moral compass, say, or change our viewpoint. So I think as as the audience is starting to mature, I think the medium is starting to mature, and that's what's meant that we've started to see these sorts of games come out that do those sorts of things, that things like Spiritfarer or Papers, Please, a few years ago, or um, was it Sea of Solitude that came out a year before last uh, that, that basically is about depression and dealing with depression? Um, and some of these work and some of them don't, right? So that game, I I didn't really get on with. I thought it was quite a, um, a, a jackhammer approach to representing depression. Like depression was literally this big, dark, scary monster that was following you around. And some people do feel it that way, but not everybody. Um, but I think... I, you know, I don't think we're moving towards games being fine art or anything like that. I think that people are just coming to realise that this is a really powerful medium that you can tell um, a myriad of different stories about different things from different people's perspectives and that there's a growing appetite for that now. But yeah, um, I can't see things like Call of Duty not being the most popular game for the, for the next 10 years because at the end of the day it's good fun to go around and 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 beat the other team, right? That's that's what we like doing. I, I wonder if you could talk a bit now about you know, obviously you professionally study these areas, so you are you've got a background that allows you to be able to, you know, like read academic papers and understand what they're talking about and you've got a professional interest in it. But how do you how did you go from that? to putting it all down in, in in a book and i know that does sound like a very basic question like how is a book made but obviously <laughs> I, I just mean that like often we've got areas lots of lots of us have got areas in which we have an an interest combined with a professional expertise but if anything that you know it's the phd problem right that it's, mm. it's actually terrifying because you know how much you don't know how much you know about the like the things you could write about games are almost kind of infinite and you have yeah. to try and bound this in yeah. so i wonder if you could talk about how you came to decide to write a book and then how you started so, sort of deciding what not to write about and how you were going to give it some kind of shape it's a really good question actually i think the answer to that is is tied into how i got into video games research as a psychologist in the first place anyway um i i can pinpoint the precise moment that i became interested academically in video games and i was in a pub in bristol around about 2012 i think um and i'd seen an article in a very large, very well-known online newspaper that claimed, and the headline was, Computer Games Leave Kids with Dementia, warns top neurologist. 
Well, that seems, I mean, Pete, that seems open and shut. We should stop playing games. So uh, <laughs> case closed. <laughs> there we go. It annoyed me for a number of reasons that. So the first was that there's no research to back that up. And to this date, there's no evidence to suggest that that's actually the case. The top neurologist in the question wasn't a neurologist. They were a neuroscientist and they were, those are different things. And also that person had never done any research on video games. So it's a classic case of uh, scaremongering and uh, using an argument from authority, right? And it really, maybe it's because I was drunk at the time, but it really annoyed me. And I was ranting about this in the pub. And one of the professors in the department who I guess probably said this because he was bored of listening to me. It's like, Pete, what, just shut up. Why, why don't you put your money where your mouth is, right? Yeah, if you don't, if you don't buy this, do the research. And that kind of started a, a process of, of realization that it's really hard to do research on video games for all sorts of reasons. But um, we, uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of what kickstarted my, my, my career in, in that realm. And alongside that, I'd started getting into science blogging. I was, I've always been interested in science communication and public engagement. And it just say, it seemed like this was an important thing to talk about that we, we constantly see this sort of cycle of moral panic about video games. You know, every six months or so, somebody comes out and says something about how they're melting kids' brains or they're, uh, they're making everybody zombies or they're giving kids dementia. And it's always nonsense. It's always nonsense. You look at the person saying it, they don't know what they're talking about because they don't do research in that area. Uh, and the research doesn't show that anyway. Um, so I did that for a few years and then... I I kind of got bored, not bored, but tired of blogging. Blogging's really tiring, right? Um, I wrote for The Guardian for four years, uh, five years, actually. I, was, I ran their science blog network for four years. And that, that, was, that was a tough gig because there was this constant, not a pressure from them, but a sort of an internalized pressure that we needed to get stuff out and it needs to be current and contemporary all the time. And it, it just gets a bit knackering after a while. Um, and that folded in 2018 and I was kind of, I mean, I was sad because I think it was an immeasurably good thing to have um, independent scientific voices in a major international newspaper talking sensible stuff, um, which we don't have enough of anymore. But it was a relief in other ways in that it took that pressure off, right? And and, and through, through doing that sort of blogging, I, I just kind of realized that I wanted to write a book and um, and actually so so I started talking to a, to an agent um, and it was about a different book to begin with it was about um, fraud in science and how some scientists do naughty things sometimes and and how good scientists are trying to fix that and that kind of got stuck in development hell for about a year and I remember it got to a point where I spoke to my agent, this guy called Will Francis, and he's brilliant. Um, I spoke to him one day and he was like, I'm not, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure how to pitch this book to to publishers. And I replied by saying, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure I want to write this book anymore. <laughs> I'm kind of bored of the idea. And we kind of almost sort of said in unison, why don't I write a book about video games? Because, yeah, whenever I went to go and see Will, we'd talk about games, right? And you know, take take my switch and we play Mario Kart and stuff like that. So it's sort of like this, almost like an epiphany moment that you know 
that I'm doing this as a psychologist, as my day job. <laughs> Why am I not deciding to write a book about this? This is this is stupid. I'm just imagining you two going for your meetings and always playing Mario Kart and, and while you're having a half-hearted meeting about And then you're like, <laughs> maybe this is the book. Maybe we've been making the book all along. Maybe we haven't been skiving. This is the book. This is the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish it. I wish it was deeper than that. But actually, that's 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 probably quite quite accurate. But but again, why shouldn't you write about something that you care about? That's an, that's part of your life. Like, why should we go? Well, no, we can't do this because you like this. We've got to have yeah, something. Yeah, and 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 Will gave me some really really important advice that's always stuck with me um, about about writing a book. Um, and it it was that you know you've got to ask a few questions of yourself, right? So why why this book and this topic why now and why should people care that it's you that's writing it um and it felt like for the for the other book idea i had i could maybe answer a couple of those questions like it was current stuff and i felt like it was important but there was no particular reason why i might be somebody worthy of reading um but with a video game book felt like it made more sense you know i play games all my life i am literally a psychologist who does research on them um i've written about them in in the news and the international press um and i know i know my stuff when it comes to the science of it um and that and for those reasons it's just sort of clicked right um but yeah and then we pitched the book um somebody picked it up thankfully and then yeah got to write it which was a horrifying experience <laughs> so well i just please please go you on know, because i know, you we know talk... you've just written a book you know how awful it is right well i know how awful it is for me but i don't know that that's necessarily true for everyone and i also know that when i hear despite me having that experience when i hear other people say that i assume they're being modest slash joking and because the, the immediate comeback that, you know, anyone who doesn't write would say is like, well, why would you do it then? Um, you know, why would you put yourself through that? And so can you talk about in what mm. ways? Because, you know, on the face of it, you're writing about something that you've d done all your life that is you've been commissioned to, you know, you're now able to write a book. Someone's picked it up. So someone wants interest in subject that you're interested in. You've got professional interest in. Um why are you not just like okay? So this is I'm on my sort of mastermind topic. I've got I've got the mic. Let's go. Like why? I'm I'm just saying from sort of like yeah. a naive outsider point, people would go, why would that be uh, uh, horrendous? So it's like running a marathon in a way, right? It's um, it's it's not just writing eighty thousand words. It's writing like one hundred sixty thousand words and trying to figure out which words to get rid of and trying to um, do that in and amongst other things that are happening and going on in, in life is, is, is difficult. It's, you know, it's easy to do that for a week. It's harder to do it for a month. It's really hard to do it for three, four, five, yeah. six months uh, without, without a break. Right. One of the things that I struggled with um, and I'm writing another book at the minute and I'm, I'm finding it harder. I think this time around is that, I, because I do, re I feel like because I do research in this area and, and I know the science, 
that if I get it wrong, that is really, really, really bad, right? Um, and there's lots of ways in which you can get it wrong, right? You could miss, you can miss a particular study that's quite important. You can misunderstand a particular study that's quite important. You can inadvertently, and I think this was the the issue that I had with Lost in a Good Game, was that I tried really hard. I didn't want it to be games are great, everything's fine, play games, idiots, that kind of thing. Um, as a counterpoint to everybody saying games are the worst thing in the world. I don't think that's where the truth lies about video games. The, the truth about video games is somewhere in the middle, right? You know, they're, they're good for us in these ways. They're maybe not so good for us in these ways. And, you know, you need to be sensible about how you use them, right? But there's so much bad science out there about video games that it was hard at times not to go, this is all naff, ignore all this stuff here's the good stuff that you need to need to look at and you basically don't worry about games because then it sounds like you're 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 cherry picking and you're being biased in the opposite direction uh and for me as a as an academic as a researcher doing this sort of stuff that's that's a dangerous position to hold i'm writing a book about screen time at the minute which is like video games research on steroids right it's all the problems in video games research you see tenfold in screen time and everybody knows about screens and everybody has an opinion about screens so it's hard to it's hard to kind of toe that line um so that that was why i found it difficult it was finding finding the narrative the right sort of narrative um to tread that line appropriately without being so on the fence that you end up becoming you end up sounding bland this, well, this is the thing I wanted to ask, because there's like a tremendous selection pressure in the media for polemics. I got into, I would say, a polite disagreement. I think it genuinely was a polite disagreement with uh, an agent uh, on Twitter um, who had written one of it. He came up with some tips for writing a nonfiction book, and all of which I thought were brilliant, actually, uh, except the last one, which was uh, he said... Uh, Switches, not dials. People want to know if a thing is good or bad. If you tell them, well, it has some good aspects, but it has some... We already know... Guess what? We already know that. We need to know, stop doing this. Start doing this. This is good. This is bad. Just mm. start a conversation. And I I was like... I felt... I personally felt like the world <laughs> doesn't need more of that. And yeah, that involves yeah, lying sure. a lot of the time, or at least being an, a naive marshalling of the facts. Yes, and I, I yeah. want to say, like, how... Because I find... I found um, Lost in a Good Game almost... I, I found it like almost like a detective story in that you kind of, like, follow stuff and that creates a kind of... Oh, well, we got this. But now, actually, when we look at it a bit more, we it swerves this way and now it, it's mm. not clear. So I find that kind of back and forth quite compelling. And I wondered how you feel like in the book you you tried to navigate because there's clearly a lot of payoffs that one can have in just... You must have felt sometimes the temptation. You It wouldn't have gone down well with your colleagues, but you could have written a book where you stripped it of nuance cherry-picked the studies that you wanted to, interpreted them in the most inflammatory way, dropped in a bunch of statistics and gone, board game, um, um, 
Video games make you a super genius. Everyone who says that there's anything wrong with them is an idiot. There are no negative aspects whatsoever. Blam, blam, blam. And, and, and created something very inflammatory that would have been easy to drop into articles, right? I think, yeah, and it, I think it probably would have sold very well and it, the, the book would have done a lot better, which is depressing in, in that sense because, yeah, you're right. I think that there is an appetite for the the kind of quick fix answers um and that's not how science works so part of the reason for that that narrative where you know say well this study says this and that seems fairly convincing but then you look at this area um and it says something different and then you look at how people are doing the studies and that's a mess so you know where are the where's the good stuff that we should actually pay attention to that's kind of how science works right so somebody will do a study you know if we're talking about a new area of research in particular and, and there's there's tons of new areas of research when it comes to kind of digital technology where people are just starting out over the past three four five years you know they've spotted something that might be of interest um started to conduct research on it and when you start out, you know, you, you'll base it on analogous stuff from other areas, but actually probably the thing that you come out with at the end is is not that great. But that's that's fine because that's what science is. What happens next time is another group of scientists come along, they'll take that paper, they'll figure out what the flaws are, they'll figure out how to improve it, and it will get incrementally better. And, you know, you do that a few times, few iterations, and then you might find that that original result, whatever it was, you get the complete opposite result, you know, three or four years down the line. Um, that that's the that's sort of how science progresses. Really, um, it, it, it's been derailed a little bit in in video games, um, in video games research because it's been exacerbated by entrenched ideological positions from the the people that research it. So the the violent video games, where the violent video games cause aggression, that whole debate is a really good example of this in that you know there's there's a few people that i can think of that when when i see that they published a paper i don't need to look at anything other than the fact that their name is on it to know what they found in it um and i know that that some of those people in particular will always find that violent video games cause aggression which is weird right it's weird that they always find the same the same finding um but it's not helpful, and you know it's 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 gotten so toxic in that area that those those competing camps won't talk to each other, right? And the way to kind of solve all that, I mean, we 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 solved the the violent video game question by and large without them in the end. But the way to have solved it was to do collaborative research where everybody gets together and goes, okay, well, you think this methodology is wrong, I think that methodology is wrong. Let's come up with one together that we're all happy with and that we can all be in agreement that we we will will put a bit more faith in the veracity of these results because you know we've we've pooled our collective abilities and that and that never happened really um but telling those stories i think is is interesting and, and useful um there's there's sort of tremendous culture wars in in the world of video games research it's it's i mean i talked about some of them in in the book um i didn't talk about others and i think there's going to be more stuff that i'll put in in the new one um just by the weird things that video games researchers do, like they're they're 
they're weird, man. Right? They 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 say strange things. Like one person once said that I have I, I published a paper on violent video games and aggression, and they said, "Oh, you didn't put a conflict of interest statement in there." And I was like, "What conflict of interest statement? What conflict of interest do I have?" And he said, "You play video games." Well, if you look at any any nutritional psychology paper, not a single one will have a conflict of interest statement that says the author of this study eats. It's just a stupid thing to suggest. You're the the winner of the Western Supermare Tekken 2 competition. <laughs> has received funds from <laughs> from the games industry <laughs> but yeah but that but that's why people say that sort of thing right because the everybody has these opinions about tech use and video games um from and they they will largely be from lived experience and, and this is what i say in the book right that um if you've not played a video game before if you watch somebody playing one it's quite a jarring experience you know it looks as though their brain's about to leak out of their ears um, so if you then go on to not play video games, you will have formed quite a negative opinion of them that then gets reinforced when you see stuff like this happen. Um, you know, I've, I've been accused of being bought off by the video games industry and stuff like that before now. And, you know, obviously it's not, it's not true. I mean, I, I wish I had that money. I could have done so much more research with that money, but no, I'm, I'm broke. Um, but you know, it's just, it, it plays into a narrative and it's what people say, to justify their opposite opinions uh, and kind of downplay what the reality of the situation is, which is that actually the behavioral behavioral effects of video games, they're not massive. You know, they don't turn kids into killers. Uh, They don't make people more aggressive. Um, They can be helpful. They can help in terms of support mechanisms, mental health and all of those sorts of things. but that doesn't tie into the public narrative around them, so people choose not to believe it. And you see that. I mean, that's that's not an issue that's unique to video games, right? We see that in all sorts of areas of science. Um, I don't know how we fix that. Well, I guess like what you're writing is is of course you can't be. <laughs> no one's I think turning to you to to change the entire of society in one fell swoop with your sort of. A, a very very poignant balcony balcony moment where you come out and address the nation but i think writing books like this uh a part of that i wanted to ask you something that might not be apparent to people who haven't read it in what we talk about uh and what we've talked about the book so far because we talked about the subject matter and things like that but um you kind of alluded to it at the beginning we're talking about grief but a thread that comes in quite early in the book which i guess i was surprised at when I first started reading it but then made total sense as I read on is uh death and bereavement like the book gets very real very quickly and I wondered how you came to decide to include that and um what you think it adds to the book um when I yeah. say what, what do, when I say what do you think this adds to the book it sounds that sounds <laughs> hostile like why do, why did you think this added something to book I, I mean that um, it's a leading question because I think it no, does. No, I, but, get you. I get you. Um, it, I, I guess it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier on in the context of you know, this idea of we find it difficult to talk about video games. So one of the things that I wanted to try and do with the book is try and find a, a, a different way of talking about them. And you know, having in mind that 
some people who read it will play video games, so they'll just get stuff, right? They, I don't need to explain every aspect of what a video game is like. They will understand that, and they'll find it boring if I do. But, you know, the book wasn't necessarily aimed at people who already play video games, really. It was aimed at people who don't know much about them and are potentially worried about their effects, right? And if you just make it a straight video game book, um, if you don't have that sort of prior experience, then it's going to be hard to get into. So I tried to I tried to do a couple of things. <laughs> so I tried to give it three three slants. One was the scientific slant, obviously. One was the the slant that you allude to, which is almost like an autobiographical element. So I talk about uh, my my dad died when I was fourteen, and I talk about that in the in the opening chapter. Um, in the context of how I use games to to well, not get over that, but to sort of help me get through that period. And that's sort of used as a lead into explaining how games can do this sort of thing for people. And yes, you know, there are risks in terms of if you use them too heavily as a form of escapism, does that cause problems, blah, blah, blah. Um, but for the vast majority of players, they can be this useful emotional support in times of need and so there was a third slant as well and i i don't think anybody's ever noticed it (laughs) which is it's kind of like a travel book right so i talk about a lot of places that i go to where i'm either interviewing people or i'm going to arcades and stuff and i try to really set the scene and do some world building so hopefully people can feel like they know what it was like to be there and then i do that when i'm talking about games as well so there's a circuit like um, I talk about Zelda Breath of the Wild. I re- tr- tried really hard to try and do some world building there and really, really set what it's like to be in that environment. And people always miss that aspect of it. So clearly I didn't do it very well. Um, but all of that together was really to try and find a way of engaging people who don't really know that much about video games and trying to get them interested in you know, what their impact might be or getting to know a little bit more about them. Um, it, it kind of, it, it came in a way from, I remember going to the National Video Game Arcade, which was then in Nottingham, and um, talking to the, the director, Ian Simons, and he was talking about this Minecraft event that they did. I think uh, so. this started from me asking him, you know, do you ever get people coming in? Because the, the NVA is sort of half arcade, half uh, living history museum um, of, of uh, video games consoles and whatnot. And I asked him a question around, you know, do you ever get people coming in who are basically trying to pick a fight who are being really antagonistic? And he surprised me because he said, no, actually, we don't really get that. You know, I was kind of almost expecting him to say that you get some parents coming in and say, I think this is all naff and all rubbish, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, we don't get that. We get a lot of people coming in who are unsure about video games and we, we do a lot of stuff to try and help them with that and, and one thing that they did that you mentioned was that they had a minecraft evening for kids so they'd set up a massive LAN network of like 30 40 computers and all these kids could play on a, a private server and play minecraft and the parents were invited along as well and at the end of the the room there was a massive projector that was sort of like a curated view of what the kids were doing in in Minecraft and and how they were seeing it from different perspectives and then what the overall thing was that they were building. And you're saying like a lot of parents, that was the moment that it clicked for them what the value of Minecraft was because you look at your kid playing on the on the computer and it's it it goes back to that thing that I was saying before that it looks as though they're just 
you know, zombified, drooling, and their, their, their brains are sort of melting into their necks. But then you kind of see the context of what's happening, and it's not a solitary experience. They're, they're interacting with their friends, and they're coordinating, and they're team building, and they're socializing, and they're creating. And you see what it is that they're doing. You, you said, you know, the, the amount of relief that parents got from doing that um, was incredible. Um, instead, he, he did say that there was one group of people that were very antagonistic, um, and they were Street Fighter Two fans. <laughs> so they did they did like a Street Fighter Two tournament a few years ago, and um, that's what made the mistake of of, of uh, attaching the consoles to LED uh, LCD TVs. You know, these are supposed to be things that are attached to CRTs. And it turns out that that's really important. Like the refresh rate of a TV is really important. So for 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 super high level Street Fighter Two fans, they can see what's happening on a frame by frame basis, and their their reflexes are so quick that you, you you can win or lose a game based on a movement that happens of like a few pixels over the course of one frame. You you plug them into an LCD uh, TV and it completely ruins the refresh rate and they can't do it anymore. So like fans were like up in awe about this and it was a terrible thing. Oh gosh, wow! I I've I've, I've only I I mean I I I must admit I feel like the sort of the the communities of people perfecting retro games and the speed running community you know like as mm. a i remember you know when my daughter was sort of two and sometimes wouldn't get to sleep we'd kind of sit and watch sort of twitch live streams of like a finnish super mario speed runner and stuff and <laughs> uh it was quite meditative but also amazing people who are spending all their time just getting to the limits of what's humanly possible yeah. I find that it's I find that its own strangely kind of beautiful art, partly in its futility, really, but like these kind of amazing things. I wonder if you could um, just talk uh, quickly about because um, we've touched a little bit on science comms in in general, and I I'm sort of like moving into I guess more sort of speculative uh, areas here. So if you don't want to answer this question, it's sure, fine. But sure. do you think? Um, what, if any, do you, uh, responsibility do you think um, publishers have when it comes to science writing? Because I think a lot of people, including me, I guess, naively even a few years ago, assumed that publishers are like rigorously checking, mm. fact checking every every single study that's cited and every single fact in, and, and that is not always true um and i wondered whether you think that's something whether the responsibility publishers should be doing more or whether it comes down to the authors or whether readers and reviewers and the kind of critical press um need to be it's their responsibility to treat everything with skepticism until it's proven itself yeah. otherwise where do you think the balance lies in terms of um making our dialogue uh sort of better and with less hype and misinformation. I think a lot of this is on publishers in the sense that um, you, what you want out there is accurate stuff, right? You want, if, you, if you're reading a, a scientific nonfiction book, you, you want to be comforted in the knowledge that what you're reading is correct to the best of our knowledge, right? And... We know that's not what happens. 
Uh, and we've seen very recently that we know that, that that's not what happens. Um, and obviously that contrasts, I think, in some ways with... Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I've seen that people have contrasted it with the need for a strong narrative. So I've seen by a few popular science writers um, the sort of setting up this false dichotomy, right, that you can either have a really, really, really strong, compelling powerful engaging story or it can be scientifically accurate it can't be both now i don't think that's true i think it's a lot harder to do both at the same time but then if you're not up to the job don't write a book um i don't think we should sacri sacrifice scientific accuracy for for the sake of something that sounds like a good good story you know I, I don't think you need to i think you can write a good story based on good good accurate science and and the problem then is that in, in writing and publishing a book i as a reader um it's it's not up to me to to figure out whether it this is accurate or not right because i'm i'm by and large i'm going to be reading this for leisure in my spare time um, and a lot of people might not have the the specific skill set to be able to go and interrogate interrogate um, particular scientific claims or particular scientific papers. A lot of readers literally won't be able to get the papers because they'll be behind a paywall. Um, I sort of tangentially, it reminds me of a, a really lovely blog post that um, John Butterworth, um, who's a physicist at UCL, wrote probably about 10 years ago now called MMR and me that is it's sort of a, about this it's not to do with books but it sort of tells a story about you know in, in the the aftermath of the Wakefield scandals around um, MMR um, you know he, he's a he's a scientist and you know he was like you know, of course you should vaccinate your kids uh, it's it's the absolute right thing to do this guy's a massive fraud and then his kids got to the age where they needed the MMR vaccination and suddenly it became really real, right? It's like really, you know, say what I want as a scientist, but it's my kid that's about to have that needle in their arm. I need to go and check that actually everything's okay. Um, and he and his wife are in really privileged positions in the sense that they are professors, they're research academics, they've got the skill set to be able to read and understand these papers. They've got the privileges in terms of the access through their university institutions. You know, a lot of these papers, you know, it might cost you 30 quid just to download the paper once or you know you have to have a subscription of thousands of pounds to access the journal each year nobody's nobody can afford that right universities can't even afford that um so most people won't have that access or that ability you know you read the papers understood that mmr's fine kids got vaccinated and I, for me it's a really powerful story about you know what you kind of ideally want people to do in terms of critical thinking whenever they read anything right you want people to kind of take a step back and say do i believe this or not if i don't believe it why not if i believe it why do i believe it what's the evidence either way my bias aside what's what's the truth based on on evidence nobody's got time for that right you can't you know if you did that with every piece of writing that you read you, 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 just, you wouldn't read anything. You wouldn't be able to. You know, people have got lives to live and other hopes and fears and dreams and things like that. So what we do is we, we kind of base 
base our lives off heuristics, right? And one heuristic is that somebody's written a pop science book, they're an expert in that area, they must know what they're talking about. It it's probably accurate. So we don't we don't kind of interrogate further. So obviously there's an onus on the writer to be accurate, but we know that there are good faith and bad faith writers out there. So there's got to be some sort of gatekeeping mechanism somewhere further down the line that checks for this sort of stuff. And really that for me lies with the publishers. I don't really think that it's it's fair that you wait until something's published and hope that critical reviewers pick it up because by then it's too late. The book's out there and some people will blindly accept it anyway. I, it surprised me when I found out that nonfiction books don't get fact-checked as standard. And it terrified me as well, actually. It really scared me when, when it came to my book because I was like, that feels like a nice safety net to have. You know, I would treat that as, I think I've got this right, but it'd be nice to have somebody independent of me writing it, just check it all, right? Yeah, you, you want so, you want them to tell you you've got spinach in your teeth before you go out to the party, right? And yeah, go, yeah. Oh, you go, oh, that's a bit embarrassing, but you take it out and then you go out and you're not going to do that publicly. It was just one person yeah. that caught that, right? It, it, yeah, it's scary that that doesn't happen as standard. It is scary. So, I mean, in, in the absence of publishers doing that, I don't, I don't know what we do. I mean, I think, you know, we've got... We, we, we've got to be, and I've thought this for a long time, we've got to find a way of teaching people how to be more critical in their day-to-day -day lives and not just kind of accept something as a given straight off the bat. Um, it's so easy to do, right? It's so easy to just see something on Twitter and go, ha, you know, I agree with that and, you know, therefore it must be, must be correct. Um, it, it's so much harder to go, that's something that I agree with. Is it accurate though? Is it, is it true? let me go and check um, or just kind of ignore it completely. Right. Um, I tried to do some research on this a few years ago in the context of um, uh, neuro myths, you know, things like, um, so things that happen in schools, like kids, kids are told that they have a particular learning style. Um, like you know, like kinetic a, or visual or. Yeah, kind of thing, yeah. 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 It's all, it's all bollocks. Um, and you know, they might be a left brain, analytic learner versus a, a creative right brain learner. This is all stuff that's based in a, either a, a willful misunderstanding of neuroscience or a complete misrepresentation of it, or just a, just people don't know what they're talking about. But these things are taught in schools and there are very expensive packages that companies sell based on them that claim that it will make the kids in your class smarter or more attentive and things like that. So it's a real problem in education because you know, some of these things cost like £400,000 for like a, a, a software package or a, a program that's just absolute nonsense, right? So we, we did we did a bit of work um, a few years ago where we, um, we uh, at my university, we have a big uh, postgraduate teacher, um, teacher training course. So we took those students and we we did some stuff around neuromyths. So we kind of we got them to we did we did this really cool experiment where we um, got them to read some stuff, right? So we we gave them a, an ex, an explanation, sorry, a, a description of a psychological phenomenon, and then we gave them an explanation, right? And the explanation could either be a good or a bad explanation, and you could either have a good explanation with some completely irrelevant neuroscience in there. 
um, or not, or a bad explanation with completely irrelevant neuroscience. It's based off a paper from about 10, 15 years ago, and we got the same result as that paper, which is that people, we asked them, how satisfied with you are you with this explanation? Um, people generally are more satisfied with explanations. Uh, so they tend to be more satisfied with good than bad explanations, which is good. Um, but they tend to be m more satisfied with bad explanations that contain irrelevant neuroscience. So if you literally just put the words, because brain scans indicate that, blah, 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 in there, people are more likely to be happy with that answer, right? So we did that study with them, and then we showed them the results, and it was like a massive eye-opener for them. And we did some education around what neuromyths are and learning styles and stuff. And then we sent them out into their, 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 their training posts and things like that, and then brought them back about six months later and uh, just did some kind of questionnaires and surveys on what their viewpoints are and we did see a shift so those those students that did believe and buy into these neuromyths at the start didn't by the end of it um, and a lot of them said you know they were trying to take that into the schools and trying to change change people's beliefs there because these things are so endemic so it is possible um, it just you, you need to do this at sort of all levels of society right and when you talk about doing that for like a single non-fiction book man it's exhausting to do this time and time again right and you must find that sometimes you get these like wonderfully the 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 the, the, the reward for your diligence must sometimes feel that good stories sort of dissolve because you go oh actually they did follow this up and the follow-up studies didn't find and actually now i'm looking at this the effect size isn't really big enough the effect size isn't really this is an inadequately powered study so probably actually mm. it's it's a cool story but i can't include it whereas someone who doesn't do any of that diligence just gets to include it um mm. the and then and then reviewers go wow this is like I a would, real yeah i wouldn't call it a good story i call it a simple story simple stories dissolve when you look at the evidence right there's still interesting stories there right because i think it's interesting in and of itself to say Here's this massive effect that you find. You know, we've seen this in like there's you know pick anything famous from psychology over the past few years, and you can see that there's been a mess in this area. But like power posing was a really interesting one, right? You know, this idea that you know if you stand a bit like Superman pose, yeah. um, it's supposed to make you feel more confident and stuff like that. And we went through this weird period where a load of Tories were doing it a few years ago. Like I remember <laughs> Theresa May standing. Legs Akimbo and uh, Sajid Javid and all these people just did really weird poses, but I don't know whether they looked at the research. But yeah, anyway, the really kind of simple, compelling story, right? If you stand like this, you will feel empowered, right? Do the replications and and try to really properly interrogate this finding, and it it just disappears, right? It's not actually a thing. Um, so you know, if you're trying to write about that story. It's almost like, so the, the quote unquote story disappears because you might, you know, in 100 years time say, people thought power posing was a thing, but actually it turned out not to be real. That's a boring story. So I'm not even going to say anything about power posing, right? But the interesting story is not whether or not power posing exists as an actual thing, but the journey that we went through to try and understand that. You know, what, what, what were the conditions that meant that we found this really powerful, strong effect to begin with? How did things change and what were the conditions later on and what was how how were people doing science differently that meant that we then found out that it's not what we thought it was? 
and that's 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 the story of people right because scientists are people and people are idiots sometimes um that it's, it's about the errors that we make and the pressures that we're under and 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 that's that's the kind of that's the good story to me yeah like the, the whole thing becomes a bit more complex it becomes more complex than you being able to say paraposing is a thing or our attention span is only 65 seconds now right but that's not an interesting story it's not interesting and it's wrong <laughs> it's the worst <laughs> kind of story right simple uninteresting wrong um and if you can't if you can't expand out on that you're talking about dials versus switches earlier if that mystifies me because if you can't expand out on a concept or a story in 80,000 words, when can you do that? You know, book, books should be about dials, right? They shouldn't be about switches. Um, you know, if you're not allowed to do that over the course of 80,000 words, I don't know when you would be. So, yeah, that was very, yeah. But, but, I mean, I, I know, I know really, I know where this comes from, right? I know that because you want those catchy one-liners that will really grip people and get them to, to buy the book. But I think, all yeah, like science doesn't work that way, though. That's not how science is. And people who say that it does and make these claims just don't know what science is. I wonder if um, you talk, I wonder just as a sort of, um, to kind of close this off uh, as a kind of conclusion to our talk. Thank you, Pete. That was really, really um, interesting and helpful. Um, you talked a bit about sort of there's some people are writing in good faith and some people are writing in bad faith. But of course, and I know this from personal experience, one can write or talk in complete good faith and be talking bollocks because because i you know you what you over you read one sort of pop science article and you go oh that had something counterintuitive in it but that confirms my deep beliefs about how the world works i'm going mm. to go around spreading that to other people now sort of repeating and, and and i'm you know you might be doing it in total belief that what you're saying is true but it's actually not true when uh people who are you know listening and for all of us like when we're writing something whether we're writing something that's in the science communication field or whether we're just writing any piece of non-fiction where we're going to be at some point making claims about something whether they're historical or sociological or whatever um are there some things that we can run through in our heads or some things we can keep in mind um or some kind of foundational text we should have uh, familiarize ourselves with before we attempt to do any of this that can help us avoid some of those uh sort of like logical mm. mistakes and cognitive biases and unscientific truth claims good question um i mean i think just so so uh, this is maybe gonna sound a little bit cliched in a way but um ben goldacre wrote a great book um wow, it must be like 15 years ago now, called Bad Science. Um, and that's just sort of a collection of stories of people doing like really, really dodgy things under the under the guise of being scientists and stuff. Um, I, I've, I've always found that a really good, gentle introduction to sort of general critical scientific thinking, uh, just as a way of like looking at uh, looking at the world. I think over and above like set texts and stuff like that there's just a there, there are like a few things that you can do 
again, they're really hard. It's, you know, it's good to maybe like write them down on a piece of paper because when you're actually in the moment of reading something, go, yes, that's exactly what I thought is going on, blah, blah, blah. It's hard to, to remember them. But, you know, be critical of things you don't agree with. Be more critical of things that you do agree with. Um, try and stop uh, and, and not get carried away when you find that, you know, when that thing that confirms all of your beliefs and, you know, is the, the key to the rest of your book. Um, just take a step back and think, actually, am I excited because this fits in neatly or actually is it going to blow things apart? And I think the thing for me, one of the things that's always worth asking yourself is um, what what would the evidence look like? What would, what would it take for me to not agree with this? So what would the, what evidence would I need to go, Oh, actually that's rubbish. Um, and then go and see if you, if that evidence exists, right? See if people have done research that say, actually screen time doesn't impact our mental health or screen time does impact our mental health. So, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp that screen time is not, a massive thing that impacts on mental health that those claims have been overblown but what i do is i go and read the studies that say that screen time has very strong associations with mental health and i try and understand how they've done those studies and whether they're accurate or not or whether i can be can be sure can be convinced that they're fundamentally flawed in some way that that others aren't or you've got to sort of check those biases every step of the way, right? Especially in kind of contentious areas. Um, but yeah, it's just evidence, evidence, evidence. What, what, what would it take for you to change your mind? And does that exist? I think is a good sort of rule to live by. Thank you very much, Pete. I really, video games and what they can do for us. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes for everyone listening. Uh, if you want to grab a copy, Pete, if people want to, um, follow you, uh, online where's the best place that they can find out more about your work or um do you have a social media account that people can follow you on yeah so i'm on twitter i'm, I'm pete actuals on twitter <laughs> um i have a website peteachuls.com i don't update it very often but it's got stuff on there you can contact me through that as well but twitter's the place to talk to me okay thanks very much and to everyone listening thank you for listening and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing